are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We'll be looking together at the beginning of chapter 5, and you'll find this on page 913 of the Pew Bible. The last time we met, the first in our series of six, we considered the nature of hell. It's an awful place where the wicked will be punished everlastingly in both body and soul. And so tonight, in the second of our series, we consider the basis for this incredible doctrine. So read with me, if you would, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of God. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Well, Ananias is to the New Testament book of Acts what Achan was to the Old Testament book of Joshua. Both men are found at the beginning of the Old Testament and the New Testament churches, respectively. The deceitful actions of both of these men impeded the progress of God's kingdom on earth. The property that Ananias sold belonged to him before and after the sale. And neither he nor his wife was under obligation to donate all the proceeds. We want to make that clear at the outset. But when Ananias appeared to give it all, he kept back some for himself. And that word kept back is the same word used in the Septuagint to describe Achan's sin. This is a clue that Ananias' transgression was of the same kind with Achan's. Ananias and Sapphira must have told the apostles beforehand that they would give everything to the church. So while pretending to give it all, they embezzled a portion of it for themselves. And it was rank hypocrisy. They sought the credit of generosity without the inconvenience of giving it all up. So Ananias was not only a thief, but he was also an outright liar. That's the worst kind of thing. But worst of all, Ananias didn't sin against man, who is finite and unholy, but Ananias sinned against God, who is infinite 
and holy. Peter said, why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. He did lie to man, quite frankly, but its heinousness arose from telling a lie to God. It's as if his sin against man was lost sight of in view of the great sin that he committed against God. And this is precisely that to which Achan confessed when he was confronted by Joshua. Achan answered, Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And the magnitude of a sin against God makes a sin against man as if it's nothing. Eli said to his sons, if someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? <laughs> Ananias committed a capital crime, so he suffered capital punishment. Peter rebuked him. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And perhaps he didn't think God could detect his sin or see the motives of his heart. We don't know. We don't know for sure what went on, but Peter said that he lied against the Holy Ghost. And as a consequence, Ananias and his wife Sapphira were executed summarily, instantly. God is not mocked. One may escape the punishments from men, but he will not escape the punishment from God. And I think this helps us better understand the basis for the biblical doctrine of hell. We learned that hell is the everlasting fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is the lake of fire reserved for the devil and his angels and the bottomless pit from which the smoke of a great furnace forever rises. It's an awful doctrine. It's terrifying. But just because it terrifies us doesn't make it false. On what ground does this doctrine stand? What is it that undergirds this doctrine? Why are people who commit sins in time punished for all eternity? <clears throat> and as we consider this, we find at least four good reasons for believing this doctrine. Ultimately, we believe it because God said it, and that should settle it. But in addition to this, there are good reasons for the doctrine of hell. And as we said last time, according to John Flavel, a sermon of hell may keep some souls out of hell. So, first and foremost, the doctrine of hell is based upon the justice of God. It is lawful. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No one understands and no one seeks for God. The whole human race has turned aside and no one does good. God's indictment of the human race is perhaps the most sobering of all. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, so that apart from God's mercy in Christ, everyone stands guilty before his throne. Thankfully, all, don't, all do not perish, but God saves some by the blood of Jesus. That's why we're here this evening. Paul describes the final separation as the righteous judgment in Romans 2. In Genesis 18, Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? 
God will render to every person according to his work. <clears throat> and since the wages of sin is death, the judgment rendered will be death. To render another judgment would make God unjust, and that's absolutely impossible. So the justice of God is a fundamental basis for this doctrine of hell. No one will ever suffer the penalty for which he or she is not liable. Every soul that is sentenced to hell is judged according to the law of God under perfect justice. It's the law that sends them there and it will be the law that keeps them there. Because as Galatians 3 reminds us, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And at death it takes hold and arrests, claps on the shackles, and commits to hell. That's why Peter says that those who rejected the preaching of Noah are spirits in prison. If we think about it, God's justice demands that the penalty be eternal because a sin against an everlasting God will incur divine wrath that is everlasting. Isn't that just? There is nothing about God that, be, that can be classified as finite, nothing. He's an infinite God. His love is infinite, his wisdom, his power, they're infinite, they're eternal. So must be his wrath. There's nothing about God that is finite. All of his attributes are equally ultimate. They are infinite and eternal. And therefore, if the penalty threatened is wrath, then that wrath must be everlasting. Because of sin, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience in Ephesians 5, 6. And I want us to consider this well, because the damned in hell will never truly repent of sin. If you think about it, for all eternity, they will continue indulging their sinful desires of hate, envy, desire for revenge. They will hate God and they will despise Christ and they will blaspheme the divine name on into everlasting the Apostle John describes the after effects of the fifth bowl of wrath upon the earth in these words. People cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. So as long as they continue in that state, their sin will be deserving of wrath. They'll never repent. You can't repent when you're in hell. And since they'll never repent, and since their sins will just keep piling up, the punishment will be eternal. Dear friends, justice must and will be satisfied in this world or the next. There is the execution of justice in this world, but it is incomplete, as you and I both know. That is to say, not all sins are punished justly in this world. There are many crimes that go unpunished. Asaph was having a difficulty with this when he said, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Their crimes went unpunished. And most people live in opposition to God in spite of his commands. And so when sin is punished in this world, they refuse to recognize it as sin's penalty. Because as Paul summarizes the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the unbeliever, and I can remember myself doing this, 
I know what it's like. The unbeliever refuses to acknowledge the source and the reason behind the judgments that God sends. He suppresses the truth of God's holiness, his justice, his sovereign displeasure. He will not admit that he deserves punishment because, as I quote him, I'm a good person. Sadly, he'll realize the truth only after departing this world for the next, and he'll receive his condemnation according to divine justice, and then to all eternity he'll suffer until he's paid the last penny. But of course, no one is able to pay the last penny, so he'll be there forever. First, the doctrine of hell is based upon the justice of God. Second, the doctrine of hell is based on the principle of proportion. It's not only lawful, it's fitting. That is to say, the punishment inflicted will be in proportion to the majesty offended. And sins receive their aggravation in part according to the party who's offended. Now, what do I mean by that? In other words, the sins that you and I commit against a friend are far less heinous than a sin that we might commit against a king. Do you see the difference? The one is an offense against an equal. The other is high treason. The former may be punished. The latter must be. It's a capital offense. So the greater the majesty and the dignity of the party against whom we offend, the more heinous the offense. That's the aggravation of sin. So sins committed against an infinite God offend a being of infinite dignity. Every time you and I sin, every time, it's what may be described as cosmic treason. It's fitting and proper that the nature of the crime determine the nature of the punishment. And these are capital crimes, my friends. They deserve capital punishment because the wages of sin is death. Our standards teach us that every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God and against his righteous law, deserves his wrath and curse both in this life and that which is to come. And I'm convinced that it's only in the insensitivity to sin is the reason why we think hell is too harsh. We're insensitive. Anyone who thinks this way ought to examine his or her view of sin. In his book, The Evil of Evils, perhaps you've heard of it, Jeremiah Burroughs has one recurring theme. It's basically this. It is better to choose affliction than to sin. How different this is from much of contemporary preaching which says anything but affliction. Burroughs rightly shows from Scripture that nothing is to be more feared than sin and more avoided than sin and more hated than sin. All sins, every single one of them, are against an eternal being of infinite majesty and perfection. And according to the principle of proportion, such sins deserve hell. Nothing less than this would be fitting. God is worthy of reparation. There is an infinite degree of wickedness in the very least of sins. And that's because, as we've said, every sin is ultimately against the true and living God. Isn't that what David said? Against you, you only, 
Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Every sin is utterly heinous. There is no basis for a distinction between mortal and venial sins. All sin is lawlessness, and all sin incurs guilt, and all sin deserves wrath, and nothing can take away the guilt of sin but the blood of Jesus. So basis number one is justice. It is lawful. Basis number two is the principle of proportion. It is fitting. Basis number three, the dictates of logic. It makes perfect sense. The first premise has to do with the link between sin and punishment. All disobedience is punishable. That's just. History, experience, conscience, they all witness to that truth. We see it in various punishments and consequences for sin in this world. Some suffer because of the unavoidable results of sin, poverty. Some of the poor are poor because of their sin. Not all, some. Others suffer the negative response of offended parties. You sin, you're rejected. You're a social outcast. Still others suffer civil punishments. They're incarcerated or they're executed. Conscience approves of this. The penalty of rape and murder, death. So the major premise is the fact that disobedience is punishable. The second premise is that all sin is disobedience. It's against the law, right? So this minor premise is indisputable. No one disagrees with the definition. Scripture says sin is lawlessness. I can say all sin is immoral. I can say it's a violation of the moral law. It's disobedience. So we have our major and our minor premise. All disobedience is punishable. Major premise. All sin is disobedience, minor premise. Therefore, conclusion, all sin is punishable. Makes perfect sense. Triple A1 for you logicians. It's valid. Better yet, all sin must be punished. But if all sin is not punished in this world, when will it take place? Some sins are punished, many sins are not, many crimes go unpunished, as we said, and logically, therefore, there must be a final judgment to satisfy the demands of justice. God will have his day, Christ will be vindicated, and sinners will be punished, and there is no sin of even the slightest degree that will go unpunished. So the logic of hell is why even pagan philosophers affirmed this truth. Isn't that interesting? Through the ages, those pagan philosophers have referred to a place of torment in the afterlife. Think of the silly Roman myths that have glimmerings of this doctrine. Pluto, who ruled the underworld. Radamanthus, who was a judge. Charon, the ferryman who took the souls across the river Styx. They're foolish fables, but they contain thoughts about the judgment. The wiser and the more serious of ancient philosophers speak more plainly of judgment. They contemplated sufferings and punishments endured in Hades. Cato reproved Caesar for scoffing at the punishments after death. Plato believed in the afterlife and he reaffirmed future torments. So our doctrine of hell 
is based in part upon the dictates of logic because it makes sense. But it's not only based upon justice or the principles of proportion or upon logic, but most importantly, the doctrine of hell is based upon the word of God. It's revealed. Not only because of those things, but our doctrine of hell is based primarily upon the testimony of God himself. Whatever the Lord reveals in scripture must be received and embraced. We're told that it's impossible for God to lie. He cannot deny himself. There are things in the Bible that are very difficult for us to understand or accept for that matter. I don't especially like being told that I'm totally depraved, but that's what God says. Scripture speaks of a great serpent that spoke and a flood and a trinity and the bottomless pit. And difficult or not, if God reveals it in his word, we're bound to believe it. The Bible speaks of a judgment fixed by God, followed by punishments that are eternal. And on that day, the wicked will be thrown into hell, both body and soul. Matthew 25, 46, Jesus himself says, the wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I do not believe that our Lord could express the reality of hell any more clearly. Moses Stewart said, we must either admit the endless misery of hell or give up the endless happiness of heaven. Those whose lives expose an unbelieving heart will be cast out. They'll go away into eternal punishment into what's called the lake of fire. And you might think that's a fairy tale, but our Lord Jesus certainly didn't. He said, and I quote, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he's killed has authority to cast into hell. Jesus believed it. That's good enough for me. Could there be any authority, any testimony more authoritative than that? Now, I have to agree that there is no doctrine more solemn and more sobering and more startling than this one. It shocks the discerning mind. It horrifies the sensitive soul. And the reality of hell is far worse than any penalty of any pagan myth that they can come up with. Just as the human imagination cannot possibly conceive of the joys experienced in heaven, so the human imagination cannot possibly conceive of the pains endured in hell. But this is what God has revealed, and he cannot lie, and it's true. You must admit it's consistent with the impressions of guilt upon your conscience and mine. You must admit this. Conscience is this internal witness that passes judgment by applying the law of God. Each time we sin, conscience speaks. Try to squelch it. You can't destroy it. It's the lamp of the Lord that searches all the innermost parts. And in some, the conscience never lets them enjoy a moment's peace. They live from day to day with a nagging expectation of future judgment. And on that final day, they'll be judged with full conviction 
of their own conscience. I warned you. I warned you time and time again. The sinner's excuses will be regarded, disregarded, and his pleas will be to no avail. And any pretensions that he'll make to knowing Christ will be set aside because he'll say, I never knew you. God's word teaches us that his wrath is beyond human description. Psalm 90, verse 11, who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. We cannot, I cannot overstate the terror of God's fury. I can prove that. The Lord Jesus, who is divine and human, wrestled with this concept in the Garden of Gethsemane and he sweated great drops of blood as he recoiled at the thought of suffering under the infinite wrath of God his Father. The damned in hell endure divine fury, infinite wrath, and eternal punishment. That's why in Hebrews 10 it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, if you have followed this argument to this point, you know that there are reasons for hell. It's lawful, it makes sense, it's proportional, and it's been revealed. The basis for this doctrine is strong and stable, and the question at this point is simply this, what do we do? How can we escape the wrath and curse of God due to us by reason of the transgression of his law? How do we escape? First, repentance toward God. You remember when those Galileans were murdered by Pilate? Jesus said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. First, repentance toward God, turning from sin, turning toward God. Second, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, trusting him for salvation. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There you have it. Like the prodigal who returned to his father, what we need to do is turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. That's it. And we're assured that our God will welcome us with open arms because he is rich in mercy. May that be the case for all who are within the hearing of my voice. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this is an awful doctrine. It's too much for finite minds to contemplate living in joy forever, let alone suffering in hell forever. But we know that you've revealed it, and for the reasons stated, it is valid. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered the pains of hell in our place. And we ask that you'll help us to praise him with hearts with, that have fresh joy and appreciation for his work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, 
or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.